This week's episode of the podcast was recorded on the 17th of August 2022 at home in Wicklow and it is a juicy, meaty episode mostly prompted by my watching Trainwreck the documentary series on Netflix about the debacle that was Woodstock 99 the the greedy cash grab that was the um, the kind of Woodstock revival event that couldn't have been more distant from the heady hippie peace and love days of 1969 and how it all blew up in the organizers faces uh, I just watched that uh, last weekend and found it gripping and compelling and unsettling and fascinating thought-provoking and it stirred up a few different thoughts and so uh, I explore them in this episode and I look at what a zeitgeist might be and when the kind of idea of generational zeitgeists clash or completely fail to see or recognize each other and I found some some different uh, different quotes from different sources that um that sort of take the uh, take the analysis or my response to that uh, that event uh, in, in in different directions and ideas about fatherhood and male role models um ideas about obedience and ideas about love and how we behave together um in large groups as opposed to how we behave in the, the, the privacy or intimacy uh, of the company of just one other person. So, um, yeah, quite a lot of quite a lot of stuff in the mix. And it just um, kind of teased itself out into being quite a, a lengthy episode. But I think um, I think I got into some interesting stuff. So I hope you can find the time to listen and I hope you get something out of it. And I hope you let me know if you um, if you get something out of it and enjoyed it. So. Buckle up and get ready for um, a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff just around the corner. I will talk to you then. Cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome. How's it going today? How are you? Check in with yourself there for a second. Touch base with yourself. Drop down to a lower gear and just go, how am I? Well, how are you? You frazzled? (laughs) Are we living in frazzled times? Maybe, maybe. But we've just got to find a way got to find a way to to push on through what's the alternative is the alternative just opting out well maybe that is something that is uh, attractive but there's ways to do that there's ways to do that without having to completely abandon the rest of humanity <laughs> I think it it veers into areas of wellness practice 
healthful practices just dropping down through the gears and de-stressing and bringing yourself into the the present moment and trying to find a way to (laughs) self-soothe trying to find a way to hold yourself to mind yourself to ground yourself and just calm it all down that's that's attainable that's attainable every day you can try and bring that focus that presence of mind that presence of self that presence of breath that presence of the physicality feel the weight of your own body feel the sensations of existence in your being and observe observe and don't judge just be a living breathing organism and then get on with the rest of your day then uh, dive headlong into the pool the great pool the great cesspit of stress of coexistence with the rest of grubby (laughs) grubby stinky humanity and do what you can do what you can to uh be a be a positive presence that's not such a terrible aspiration is it so yes here we are again another another week has passed and another episode of the clear out is here welcome to the tell welcome to the tell explorations of wellness that's what this is it's looking at how we cope it's trying to make sense of things it's striving for that calmer place it's striving for that reflective place the place that buys us time that buys us breathing space that allows us to not completely freak out and panic and give in to the pressure, the maddening pressure of life in the 21st century. Where are we at? Where are we at? It seems we're certainly in my part of the world, in good old Ireland, which might also be your part of the world, um but elsewhere as well it would seem there's a there's a financial crisis uh if it's not looming mean, if it's not already here it's looming inflation is rocketing it would seem certainly here and across the irish sea in good old england uh it's rocketing there as well so uh something Something is, is, is really out of whack. Something is off kilter. What is kilter? Can someone tell me that? Kilter. I'll tell you what, we'll be cheeky. We'll be cheeky. And we're just going to quickly look up kilter. What does kilter mean? Kilter definition is what we want, isn't it? Kilter. Off kilter. Out of kilter. Out of harmony or balance. What's the origin of 
filter. Let's see what we got here. Order, good condition in out of kilter from 1620s. Apparently a variant of English dialectal kelter around 1600. Good condition, order, a word of unknown origin. Okay, off kilter, out of kilter. Kilter. I wonder what that's connected to though. Yeah, okay. Oh well. Um so anyway, uh it does feel like that. It does feel like that. And I don't know if this is the uh as my father likes to say, and I've quoted him here before, the crisis of capitalism is upon us. And if you want to hear more on that particular topic. You could do worse than go to the Adam Buxton podcast. One of his most recent episodes is an interview with an Italian economist and academic and author. Uh, now, I'm going to go blank on her name. Her surname was like Mazzucato or something like that. It's quite a funny interview because he normally inter- interviews people from the uh, the creative life artists and performers and writers and comedians Uh, and he's a great interviewer he's a very uh, intuitive empathetic and interesting guy himself Um, and a funny a funny guy and very frank about his own stuff Um, but he um, I won't say he ran aground (laughs) in this interview but he was up against um a high functioning intellectual who was basically giving him a lesson in why capitalism is in such poor shape and needs to be tweaked and one of my favorite points of the interview was when he tried to make a goofy joke and she didn't understand him and it just stopped the interview dead in its tracks for a second she was using the word vertical to refer to power structures in bureaucracy and governance and business um the idea being vertical chains of command don't serve efficiency well and it's better to have horizontal communication departments talking to each other um but in any case uh he made some offhand silly joke about vertical his understanding the vertical of just being something that stands upright and she was like in full flow and she just kind of stopped <laughs> and this is one of those <laughs> oh, you're just kind of going yep yeah, that just really you're not you're not this isn't your audience she wasn't his audience <laughs> she's like what excuse me and he's like uh <laughs> it's just 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 been funny um Anyway, it's nearly worth it just to hear that little tiny moment in. It's about an hour long. But she does go into uh, some very interesting aspects of uh, US financial management, I suppose, and uh, economic management and looking at how wealth could be distributed in a different way or how governments can invest wealth in a different way. Um, And yeah interesting and educational if 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 you're interested in that sort of thing that's the adam buxton podcast or maybe i'll just throw that link in the description um 
yeah so tight times are coming perhaps maybe that's what we're looking at and maybe i don't know you've heard me say before uh on the podcast that it's i i said certainly it's it's not like a wholehearted conviction i'm not screaming it from the rooftops or anything but i i do feel we're living in an age of anxiety and there is something about the the sense of uh, intensifying global warming there's something about the the sense of impending financial doom there's definitely and, and this pre-exists the pandemic uh, i believe but the pandemic definitely exacerbated things or accelerated the sense of of anxiety the sense of disconnect the sense of powerlessness uh, helplessness um and of course we have the ongoing conflict um in in ukraine and it's interesting and we could have anticipated this of course it's interesting to see how that's fallen down the the front page of the papers and the front page of the uh, news websites and it's become a a smaller story this is the nature i think of how we respond to prolonged conflict uh, and the initial reaction is one of intense alarm concern uh, expressions of opinion of support of dissent uh cries for help cries for solutions and then as it drags on and on and on those voices become quieter and certainly the media recognizes that perhaps people are looking for new stories um but anyway it's still happening there's still stuff going on in ukraine um I haven't been following it closely, I'll be honest. Um, And probably for some of those reasons I just mentioned. But all of these things um, and this this sense of an impending, as I said already, the impending financial crisis, which is going to pinch hard, um, causes for concern. And you put that into an economy like Ireland's and uh, a culture like Ireland's, and the the relationship Irish people have to to property and home ownership and there's a whole other backstory there about the colonial impact on home ownership, property ownership, and the Irish obsession with owning owning your own place. So it can't be taken from you like it was historically. So you can't be booted out of your own home like Irish people were historically. That's in the mix as well. Um yeah so anyway all of that all of that is is, it's out there it's out there percolating um so what do we do what do we do to to cope um are we out on the streets protesting are we are we lobbying our political representatives to do better to change policy to put in place long-term vision are we just trying to to What's the expression? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> gird our loins. Feather our nests. Do you feather a nest? Is that even an expression? Um, what am I trying to say? Stockpiling for our own future security and to hell with everyone else. 
that's certainly a, a human characteristic, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure how great we are with the old altruistic impulse. Um, but in any case, it remains to be seen what how things are going to pan out. And I'm, I'm a terrible one for the, the, the lack of a plan, which makes my wife want to murder me. Uh, I'm a, a day-to-day kind of guy. What's the weather like? Let's look outside and see. How do I feel? Let me just check in with myself. What am I doing? I don't know. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's um, that gets old. That gets old. And there might have been a time, there may have been a time when that was charming, when that was cute, when that was endearing. But uh, 20, uh, 21 years later, it's... Um, it's it's lost its gloss <laughs> and um yeah i think my wife wants to um serve serve papers she's had enough so uh i'll have to i'll have to keep looking at that i'll have to keep looking at that and see see what my response is but i won't know until i wake up tomorrow um in any case there's a few different things i want to talk about today and i will do my i will do my best to try and pull a thread through them. And in a way, this this preamble, this prologue about the state of the world today and there's undoubtedly things I've missed, um, it does tie into some of the, the, the ideas that are going to be raised. And it is something to do with the, the zeitgeist, the feeling of the times where people where people's heads are at. But look at, here's an interesting point. Well, I think it's interesting. It's a, it's, it's an observation more than anything else. Zeitgeist is very generational, by which I mean, you know, depending on where you're at in life, the zeitgeist is going to be less or more felt it's going to be less or more present depending on where you are in life you might be driving the zeitgeist or you might be driven by the zeitgeist the zeitgeist might leave you behind and your perspective of the times might be way off and of course the older you get be, you know past sort of middle adulthood the less likely you are to really have your your finger on the pulse because often there's you know the, the, the feeling of the the zeitgeist it can often be a little bit pre-revolutionary it can often be it, it, it can as much as it's a feeling of the times it, it, i think it can often be the the indicator of something new and it can often be the the barometer of of a desire for for change i mean that's the, that's the nature of of time it's it, it it we're never in the same time we're never in the same moment it's always new now i think casually or anecdotally uh are just trying to quickly put into your head um 
a timeline through modern history, we can probably identify periods um, that were sort of zeitgeisty periods. And I think in the, the casual way of sort of revisionist history or just glancing at a, at a timeline, maybe we think, oh, well, that was like a five-year or a 10-year period. I would argue it's probably shorter than that ever. Like it doesn't last as long as that, but there's a an intensity for a moment. And maybe that's a six-month period or a one-year or an 18-month or a two-year period. And there are changes in fashion. There are changes in music. There are changes in attitude. There are political changes. There are economic changes. There are changes in in, in in rights and what people are allowed to do. There are changes in what people tolerate. Um, and there's, there's changes in what people are able to do from a, a financial, economic point of view. Um, and changes in priorities, changes in awareness changes in the big issues of the moment and all of these things tap into and define dictate drive a zeitgeist or you know whatever that uh, a zeitgeist is whatever that atmosphere is whatever that feeling that that instinct that uh that sort of that that tempo or that mode or that sensibility and i'm thinking about this because i'm going to kind of drop in i'm going to try i'm going to drop in some quotes in today's um in today's episode uh all quotes coming from my daily email my monday to friday email i get from wordsmith.org i've mentioned these guys before i get a word a day email a little etymological email giving you the a word and its its origin its usage and as always at the bottom of the email is a little quote um, for a person who is how, whose birthday is or was on the day of the email, um, historically. Yeah, So I've got a, a few quotes to throw in today and um, another couple from another source. And I'm going to try and weave these together in different ways. But before those quotes get dropped in, the main thing that's driving driving the topic today is the Netflix documentary that I guess was made last year but seems to have just come up on 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 our screens is a three-part documentary series called Trainwreck which is about Woodstock 99 so this was a sort of a Woodstock revival festival uh, organized by the same guy who organized the original Woodstock, uh, Michael Lang, he, he passed away, um, I think he only passed away last year, or in the last couple of years. Um, so Michael Lang, the original Woodstock from 1969 was his baby, and that took place in those rolling hills of rural New York, and was obviously a huge moment a huge cultural event and it captured a, a counter cultural unifying spirit 
which was connected to the the hippie movement, which was connected to the anti-Vietnam War movement. And it gathered or attracted, was it half a million people over a weekend to Woodstock? Um, uh, who were very much aligned in their their philosophies, their lifestyle choices, their sensibilities, uh, their desire for the world to be a better place. And that was reflected by the, the artists who appeared at Woodstock, reflected by their own uh, creative leanings, the types of songs they were singing, the lyrics they were writing, their own political and social leanings were very much aligned with the 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 audience that was there and it was it was massively significant and historic for 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 a lot of reasons that that make sense that add up and of course it was there was a a values war going on there as well and the hippie movement was a response to a couple of decades of conservatism, I suppose. Um, a couple of days of what? A very particular brand of American social conservatism, economic growth, economic stability. Uh, of course, that would have been the those preceding decades would have been post Second World War, um, a sort of a, a high time and a boom time for America, as you know, being being on the winning side of the war, coming back the GI Bill, um, this period of growth coinciding with the sort of the, the, the TV age and advertising the, the, the TV show Mad Men kind of tapped into that and the kind of consolidation of an image America sold itself um, and the unifying force built around very traditional conservative family values a very white vision of America I suppose and one that ultimately that ultimately to, to, to use a phrase I already used in this earlier in, in this episode an, an image or a narrative or a story that, that ran aground in, in the 60s when figures like JFK, his brother Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, these countercultural figures. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's fair to, or if, that, if that's a misnomer to describe JFK and his brother as countercultural figures, but they did represent something that was certainly on the surface that was progressive, that was liberal, that was more inclusive more embracing more forward-looking uh, regardless of their personal agendas or their relationship to wanting power they represented a threat to certain other forces in american society at that time and that's definitely true for uh, martin luther king and malcolm x who represented different facets 
and different expressions of the civil rights movement and a desire for black power and equal rights for black Americans. Um, and it led, of course, into like that same period with all those men being assassinated. Um, and that led into the, 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 the Vietnam War, America's involvement there, and really the war that kind of broke America's confidence in its righteousness, certainly in the, the, the public in the public domain in how it was perceived and it would have been a very big split in American society um, in terms of understanding the righteousness. You take a figure then like Muhammad Ali who refused to be um, conscripted and just thought like why should I fight this white man's war in Vietnam um, when black people, black Americans are being treated so badly back here and of course that cost him um, his his license to, to box for a few years but um, I think history shows the the um, the moral courage and the the correctness of his stance um, and then coinciding with the sort of the hippie movement and and flower power and alternative thinking and consciousness changing and the the loosening of the tie of conservative America and the the, the desire for a liberation the desire for for peace and fluidity um and an alternative way of thinking about the world um and a an alternative way a, a, a sort of a way of offering a different type of of power that wasn't built purely on economic pursuit or capitalist idea of attainment success happiness um and that was huge it wasn't a small thing it was big and organic and that's why woodstock the original woodstock in 1969 was was such a moment because it seemed to encapsulate many of the positive aspects of that ideology our sensibility, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. Then we cut to, now in 1994, 25 years later, the, the same organiser, Michael Lang, tried to have another Woodstock, but it was washed out. It was just a, a mud fest and it didn't hit. But five years later, again in 1999, he felt confident it would seem according to this documentary on netflix he felt confident no we can do it again it's going to be great and he teamed up with a music promoter john Scher, i believe his name is who was promoting some of the big musical acts of the time and they between them and a mysterious irish I don't even know what he is. Was he? Is he? Is he from? I think he's got a financial advisor background. Ozzy Kilkenny, Ozzy or Ossie, Ozzy Kilkenny, this um, 
yeah, mysterious, <laughs> mysterious figure. I was trying to find out more information. He had a long-term relationship with U2 and U2's manager, Paul McGuinness, um, for about 10 years, I think. And then that, that ended um, in acrimony. But um, he was one of the other very significant figures behind Woodstock 99. He's featured very briefly in the documentary, but only on some uh, footage, archive footage from the time where he's been interviewed with John Sher and Michael Lang. Um, but he, he doesn't feature in the documentary itself, but he's there and referred to as one of the three sort of, um, you know, three guys you know behind the, the, the brains trust of Woodstock 99. So um, if anybody wants to illuminate me on Aussie Kilkenny, it's double S, so I, I keep on hesitating. Is it Aussie or Aussie? Aussie? Who wants to be called Aussie? <laughs> anyway, he was there. This, this, um, yeah, this other dude, this Irishman was in the mix. But in any case, the, the guy's first big mistake, it would seem, and you know, the, the, go and watch the documentary. It's like it's about two hours in total, three forty-five minute episodes. Um, their first big mistake was deciding that the perfect place to host this amazing weekend of music that was going to reignite the spirit of Woodstock from let me just emphasize from thirty years earlier. And this is why I'm talking about a zeitgeist and the feeling of the times. Um, they chose instead of rolling green hills instead of a beautiful natural setting trees and um, yeah you know the abundance of of nature's wealth uh, which was very in sync with the hippie movement and flower power and being at peace with nature and getting away from the industrial capitalist complex. Um, The guys in 99 found a disused marine, uh, sorry, disused Air Force base in Rome, New York, which is basically acres and acres and acres of tarmac and airplane hangars. No shade. No trees, no green, no nothing. And this is where you kind of go, hold on a second. This guy who was behind the original concert, who presents himself continuously as this very sort of serene, hippie presence where, you know, it's all good and we just want to get the people together and let's all have a good time. And you can't help but go, hold on a second. What's this really about? It's, it's, it's about making money and you're not really aligned with what you're talking about. And you just think about it. Where, you know, where do hippies want to be? Not at any sort of military facility, disused or otherwise. Um, so that was the first thing they did. And again, basically what the documentary does is it lays out their logistical errors because they were so determined just to make a book and they outsourced their sanitation and water requirements and they outsourced their uh, food and drink um, providers and the result was a very underserviced um, crowd 
which was I think 400,000 people came for this weekend and that's all fine you go okay well that's that's already going to be problematic but what you do then is you throw into the mix apart from that so basically toilets that were unusable after a day or two also um, water that then became got infected with the overflow from the toilet so drinking water and washing water that got infected with the overflow from these um, horrendously over pressurized uh, portaloos you also throw into the mix extreme heat extreme heat it's like crazy crazy hot weekend in I think it was July 99 um, and then you go to the the food providers and the guys were selling water and everything's overpriced um, which you know of course you go well, of course that's what happens at music festivals and events but overpriced to such an extent that many of the attendees who were by and large I guess from mid to late teens up to mid to late 20s that sort of demographic predominantly um and they had already forked out 150 bucks for their tickets which was a lot of money then and particularly if you're a student high school or university student or maybe early in your first job um and there was yeah there was there was uh again these things they, they set a tone and if you go back to the original Woodstock, people were making food for free because that was the vibe, man. And everyone was on board and it was all good. Now, there you have a couple of things in the mix, okay? Now, I said before that the original Woodstock, the original Woodstock, the musicians, the acts, the performers, everyone who went up on stage, they were... They were in. They were in a sort of a, an alliance of sensibility, an alliance of philosophy with the crowd. Everyone was singing from the same sheet. In 1999, this wasn't the case. In 1999, most of the headline acts, it would seem, looking at the the documentary, were all purveyors of a type of angry, noisy metal. Or, or rock, which was, again, from like an aesthetic point of view, angry music, angry, aggressive, volatile, dark music, a lot of it. Uh, two of the main um, headliners were Limp Biscuit and Corn. I couldn't name a single song by either band. Um... But they were reflective of what was being channeled into the crowd, what was coming off the crowd. It seems there was something in the in 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 in, in that in the demographic that attended in ninety nine that was just restless and frustrated and angry and destructive uh, and repressed like deeply repressed emotion um, that needed an outlet and let's just add to this lovely picture I'm painting that 
it seems, again, looking at the documentary, the vast majority of the crowd were white and male. And there was a sort of a frat boy energy. This messy, immature, amped up, aggressive dickhead, for want of a better word, kind of energy from these groups of young men. Um, Now there were women there as well. And a lot of the women getting on board with the... the, um, the kind of the presented idea of hey this is Woodstock hey we're reigniting the hippie flame a lot of young women going around bare-chested having their breasts painted and trying to be in that sort of pseudo flower power mode and being you know loose and hedonistic and trying to go with the the spirit of what was being sold to them And yet, looking around, there was very little else to support that idea. There was very little else around to support that sensibility. And just ultimately what happened, and if you watch the documentary, you'll see, it just became this weekend of of nihilism. Nihilism? Nihilism? Nihilism. Let's try nihilism instead of nihilism. Nihilism. This weekend of, um, you know, uh, amorality, I suppose, and stepping away from the idea of collective care, stepping away from the idea of a harmonious, shared, humanistic vision for a better world. And after the first night, the place was just covered in in litter like just trash everywhere uh and again the documentary will reveal to you because the sanitation the garbage collection company that they'd organized basically weren't doing their job um and there was just this kind of like why should we care attitude but again if you're surrounded by those conditions it has an effect it has an impact it sends its own message and again you're kind of going well what's the you know what's the what's the driving energy what are people responding to so they're responding to their environment and they're responding to the people around them they're responding to the 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 organization of the event and the the evidence of care from the event organizers and here's another thing in the mix the vast majority of security guards they employed for the festival were just young kids, 18, 19, 20, um, untrained. Um, and from the documentary, you get the clear uh, depiction of some of those young people going, ah, why should I care about what's going on? And maybe I can sell my, my security guard T-shirt at uh, you know, for a nice little sum of money because it'll give people access to all areas. Um, and as the festival got on, the, the 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 behavior got worse and worse. And even, I think, on the second day, Cheryl Crow, not a hard rocker, um, but Cheryl Crow, I, what, Americana, how would you, Americana pop 
rock I don't know how how, how you would um, what category you would throw her into but she had a couple of big songs um, and a very successful album um, around that time was it the, was the what was it called the, the, I want to say the Tuesday the Tuesday night social club or something like that I'm probably completely wrong there but she was great and you know it wasn't like I was a huge Sheryl Crow fan but that would be more in my wheelhouse than the kind of the rockier you know the, the metal stuff the angry white guy music um, like so few faces of colour at this festival you wouldn't believe it if you look back you know see that footage now you go where are the black people where you know where's anybody else who isn't white um, and you know young and white and male as I said already but anyway Cheryl Crow gets up to play her set I think it was on the Saturday in the middle of the day sun is beating down beating down and to just kind of capture the uh, the tone and the vibe of the crowd who were there for this like metal mosh pit music um and we're not talking about like long-haired rocker types we're not talking about like acdc fans it was a different thing and it certainly wasn't a hippie thing so cheryl crow gets up you know probably in the kind of peak of her career looking amazing and my ears may have deceived me but the crowd shouted up show us your nits now maybe it wasn't nits now if it was nits I didn't see her scratching her head so they weren't talking about head lice so it could have been I don't know maybe she is an excellent uh, she's excellent with like needles and wool maybe she had a big bag of, of jumpers or as we say in Ireland gansies and the crowd wanted to see her knitwear. Unless I misheard that and they said something else that rhymes with knits. I, I might have got that wrong. But that was that was what was that, that kind of seemed to be the tone of the crowd. Um the frat boy, beard up, obnoxious, aggressive, presumptuous young male in a group the men in the herd vibe um so this is where i started to kind of think i was kind of going wow like what like what was going on like and i personally i don't really remember that event happening now one i've never been a big concert goer i've never been that's never been my relationship with uh, the musicians that uh, i've loved or listened to over the years um I got to go and see my, my two big outdoor concerts. I saw one when I was a teenager. It was Bowie, David Bowie doing the Glass Spider tour, which was either 87 or 88, I think. Um, and that was in Slane Castle, which is a big outdoor venue outside Dublin, uh, for those of you who aren't Irish. Um, and doing huge acts who've played there over the years. Um, about seven or eight years later around 1995 I saw REM play there uh, with my then girlfriend who was a big REM fan uh, so that was also at Slane Castle so they were my two big <laughs> my, my two big concert outdoor concert festival events and both very enjoyable but it wasn't really it wasn't really where my um you know my main drive was for for um events so in 1999 also 1999 i just moved back to ireland 
after being in England for a couple of years at acting school and um, I was just in that post acting school headspace very very self-absorbed trying to you know in my mid-twenties um, just trying to work out what my next move should be how I could should go about trying to begin an acting career sensing that my relationship at the time was coming to an end working out a lot of stuff uh, for myself in terms of my my uh, my issues um, with my family and trying to understand that role or that legacy and just a very a very important time in my life uh, <laughs> in terms of just maturing and starting to get a a, a sort of a nascent sense of of self um, coming out of a prolonged childhood, adolescence, early adult, early adulthood, where I really hadn't um, broken through the barriers of self and self. Whatever the opposite of insight is, I mean, it's not delusion, but there's just um there are limitations there are blinders on that that you're often not aware of that's part of our personal evolution i believe and it was um that was a key time in my life for just beginning to to get a sense of oh yeah those blinders are there and a lot of my my understanding about the world and about myself it's been a very limited view and I was just beginning to try and prize those blinders off the sides of my head and expand my my understanding without the use of of, of drugs or uh, or anything else. Um, so my mind in 1999 was a million miles away from this Woodstock revival event. Um, but the expression, the clear expression of anger and unrest and disenchantment and the expression of a desire for for chaos and destruction it made itself felt more and more as the weekend went on until on the final night when candles were handed out to the crowd so they could hold up lit candles and there was one dissenting voice in the Woodstock crew who's, who's featured quite a bit in the documentary who was kind of, kind of going, this is the last thing that this crowd needs to be handed is uh, a tool of fire, uh, which kind of speaks in a way to the, 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 <laughs> the primitive, primal, destructive urges that were seemingly rife in the crowd. Because within moments... The crowd had set fires, big fires around the, the 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 venue, and it seemed to kick off just this this rampage, um, and I heard, I read, I read someone commenting on the Woodstock event, this one on ninety nine, and basically kind of going, the people who are at the festival, they weren't interested. They weren't interested in the values of 1969 and their behaviour was a big F you to those values, to that generation. They hadn't bought in. 
and this was their way of expressing that and if you listen to the music that was on stage with those big headliners each night the music didn't reflect those values there was no there was nothing to tether them to the movement of 1969 there was no cohesive unifying vision now the headlining acts this very white male angry guitar music that's my cat that's how i'm describing it um to me that kind of rock that kind of metal it's to me it's always had and continues have had to continues to have a very adolescent uh, aspect to it there's something about the kind of the explicit demonstration the explicit acting out of here's my anger here's my rage here's all my raw emotion um and i'm going to be absolutely demonstrative with it in the most literal explicit way to me it's always I, i've never been able to shake that 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 conviction uh of that that kind of binding force of that energy it's to me it's always in this kind of yeah the 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 angry and often male the angry male adolescent energy and there was an aesthetic that went with it that you you wore it i remember like being in school with guys who were into metal and there was an aesthetic that went with it so you were wearing it outwardly all the time and it's not like i wasn't emotional it wasn't like i didn't have issues coming out my ears (laughs) but i would you know, my preferred mode of expressing that was, you know, t- to sit down with friends intimately and and talk about my feelings um, and express myself that way. And it seems I've always kind of been driven. My friendships have always had that that kind of dynamic underpinning them, um, a willingness to be emotionally frank, a willingness to be vulnerable yeah, you know, with lots of other things that have nothing to do with that. A lot of other things that are just about shared sense of humor, our interest in exercise, sport, outdoor pursuits, um, whatever, um, and many other other things as well. Um, but yeah, to me, there was you saw you see in the footage Woodstock '99 that that generation, and this is what I'm talking about the zeitgeist and the generational thing and the clash so you've got these guys who organized the event one of whom is this in my opinion a very disingenuous hippie one of whom is just a ruthless hard-nosed business promoter and they're trying to still talk the talk of 69 and hey we're all having a great time isn't this lovely and just showing complete showed a complete lack of care a complete lack of regard for the people who are at the festival because they're generationally just removed they aren't their fellow. They aren't. They weren't their fellows. They were kids. It's thirty years later. These are you know. These are you know. These were their 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 children. Um, could be they could have been grandchildren in some cases. Um, so there was no actual connection. There was no spiritual connection. Um, and these guys were were just trying to make a buck. And the way they organized the event reflected that. The lack of care, the lack of thoughtfulness, the lack of consideration. And ultimately, it blew up in their faces. Um, And 
I'm interested in that aspect of it. So there you've got a failure of, we just wanted to make money, though we pretended it was about something else. And we didn't serve the needs of the people. And this is what happened. They tore down the structure that we built. They grabbed our festival and trampled it into the dirt. And some of the musicians um, and some of the you know performers were absolutely on board with that energy. It was like, release the darkness, release the madness, release the rage. Other performers were trying to go, hey, let's just calm it down. Let's get back to a place that's more about what this should be, which is a positive communal experience. Um, but I'll tell you, and I haven't, I haven't mentioned it yet, but of course, there were a lot of incidents of sexual assault um, and a lot of women who I'd say were terrified in that crowd. And look, let's be fair, there would have been women who had a great time, a great experience and felt cool and felt safe and weren't troubled. But definitely, and you know, you get a sense of it watching the, the images from the documentary. Again, that kind of aggressive, hyper sexed up energy of of a lot of the men in the crowd um was definitely at play it was definitely in the mix and um i'm gonna i'm gonna give you one of my first quotes okay so the this is a quote from robert green ingersoll who was a lawyer and an orator from the 1800s and he was an advocate of agnosticism, uh, kind of humanistic philosophy, and of you know critical thought around the Bible. And he was a renowned public speaker, uh, one of the, the most renowned public speakers in, in, in the USA in the late 19th century. And he wrote, amongst other things, and I love this title, he wrote a book called uh, Some Mistakes of Moses. It's, it's, so, it's such a funny kind of understated title. This is my book about um, some mistakes of Moses. Um, I also have another book called Some Errors of, of, of Paul. Um, and um, I have another one that's called Advice for Jesus. Um, just, you know, just in case he's looking for some, some feedback. Um, so anyway his quote and it ties in I'm, I'm going to try and tie this into what we're talking about today uh, it has always seemed absurd to suppose that a god would choose for his companions during all eternity the dear souls whose highest and only ambition is to obey get that it has always seemed absurd to suppose that a God would choose for his companions during all eternity the dear souls whose highest and only ambition is to obey. So here Robert Greene Ingersoll is casting an aspersion on probably the, the, the compliant nature of faith, the, 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 the nature of faithful servitude and obedience. Um, now, I'm not going to reflect on that aspect of faith. I'm interested in tr throwing this into the mix of Woodstock 99. Now, in this case, to serve my purposes, you've got the godlike aloofness, the godlike arrogance of the organisers of, of the concert of Woodstock 99 and their 
disingenuous posing as this is a lovely hippie event we're all going to just kind of get on really well and this will be a great memory for all the people who come here and they completely misread their crowd because they weren't interested they just thought this is a way to make a shitload of money that was the driver it's so clear from the documentary the evidence supports this and what you have then is these mortals basically refusing to obey basically saying we're going to take your 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 shoddy festival and we're going to shove it back down your throats um and there will be no compliance there will be no obedience we're going to rain down fire on your offering um so that's and then we have you know then you know put that into the context of of zeitgeist and not reading the room and asking yourself you know what do the kids want and asking yourself can i you know if you if you're looking at your generation can i impose my thing can i impose my sense of what the times are on others and if you think michael lang surely his zeitgeist was 30 years from was from 30 years earlier um and energy changes sensibility changes values change and it's it, you know it's it's interesting because you think and robert bly in his book iron john he taps into this a little bit if you think the countercultural movement of the 60s was a rejection of very sort of traditional patriarchal values conservative roles of masculinity which were reflected in you know in, in governance um, in how the country was run probably across uh, the world of business across gender roles assign you know gender stereotypes and the countercultural movement which let's for you know for sake for the sake of argument Woodstock embodied uh, which it rejected and then what happens is you create space you create space like that rejection of the system creates space for something new to grow so then you grow up with a generation of fathers who were effectively the kind of boomer generation and you grow up with a generation of fathers many not all of course because not everyone falls into the same bracket but there was probably a generation of fathers who decided well i'm not going to go down that patriarchal conservative traditional road of laying down the law and putting down guidelines and tracks and this is how you got to live and you know stand up straight um and you know fasten your tie and shine your shoes and you know conduct yourself well in the world fathers maybe stepped away from that now what what does that leave you with it leaves you then with a generation of children who are going well how should i behave then now and again this can't be right across the board but for the sake of my thesis when something you know when something is taken down what replaces it um and why then do you get a, a generation of such angry young people or angry young men and was there a failing of of fatherhood was there a failing of of parenting and um, and was that a was that a was that part of the, the, the uh, 
downside of the countercultural um, revolution was that part of it, a downside of um, the sort of the, 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 the hippie movement? Um, I don't know. I'm just asking. Um, you also have the, if you think, and I've got a quote that's going to tie into this as well, but um, I'll come back to that. Actually, in fact, I'll come back to that in a second because I wanted to hit you with another very quick quote from Robert Greene Ingersoll, which I found when I was just looking up a bit of information about him. He has another quote, which you'll find out there amongst many social media platitudes. We rise by lifting others. That's quite nice, isn't it? We rise by lifting others. Um, and I was thinking, well, what about the women who were lifted to crowd surf at Woodstock 99? Because you can see footage and photos of them desperately trying to cling on to their clothes um, as they're being groped and grabbed and mauled by these heaving, seething masses of young men who are passing them across the tops of their heads. And very darkly, some of those women getting pulled down into the crowd. Um, again, you need to watch the, the documentary to, to see the full impact of that, and it isn't pretty. Um, so here is another thing I'm going to throw into the mix of generations and zeitgeist parenting male role models fathers listen to this i hate with a murderous hatred those men who having lived their youth would send into war other youth not lived unfulfilled to fight and die for them the pride and cowardice of those old men making their wars that boys must die that's from mary roberts reinhardt who was an American novelist, considered the American Agatha Christie, famous as a crime novel author. Now, this is an interesting one because I think it's very easy to... Now, she's not... Now, let's be clear. She's not demonising soldiers. She's not demonising warfare as such. But she is expressing with murderous hate this idea that older men whose lives have been lived, whose youths have been spent, are still willing to send young men to war to fight their battles. That, I don't know. I mean, you can have very strong feelings about that. I I can't help but feel, and maybe this is a bit connected to my martial arts background, there is something about the the bond that comes with training together with training hard with putting yourself through tough times and I'm not for a millisecond trying to create an equivalence between you know martial arts training which is largely for for fitness for personal discipline even though there can be competitions in the mix I'm not trying to make an equivalence between that and war but there is there is a bond and this would go across a lot of team sports and team you know physical um, endeavors with others that present a physical and psychological challenge if you do that with other people you form a bond um if it's if it's successful if it's done well if you overcome something together i can't help but think 
when I look back, uh, when I think back on different accounts of war, that apart from the you know the, the, the dark side, the obvious dark side, and things like post-traumatic stress disorder and what soldiers have to deal with, male or female, on the other side of war, there is also something about the... There's something ennobling about going through that experience together. Um, and I think, actually, Aaron Sorkin, in his um, in the character he created for A Few Good Men, which um, that was originally a, a play he wrote, and then it was presented um, in the movie A Few Good Men. That was his big kind of breakout, uh, um, his breakout work. But he create, created a great character, Sorry, he created a great character in um, Colonel Jessup, the Jack Nicholson character, who's the the senior officer in command at Guantanamo, where the the central event that drives the plot of the story takes place, where a, a young soldier is mistreated fatally, and Jack Nicholson's character finds himself ultimately being uh, cross-examined by the young, eager beaver, the lawyer, Tom Cruise, who's trying to try to outgrow and emerge from the shadow of his father's legacy to, to become a become a, a credible um, a credible courtroom lawyer uh, but Jack Nicholson's character sort of expresses the idea of the difficulty of the job and the the vigilance of um, of soldiers and the courage of soldiers to do that job so other people can sleep safely at night and he's a he's a complex character and he's a flawed character but there's something in that and you know it's typical of Aaron Sorkin's cleverness and his wordiness that he expresses these ideas so well but I think that does stand with me that idea that as much as it's not a role it's not a career I've ever considered or ever been drawn to you know the, the military life it can get demonized through the liberal lens and certainly that was a huge that was a huge part of the countercultural um, moment and that was what was so challenging for so many soldiers who went to vietnam and fought a really horrible uh, and confronting war the the um the righteousness of which many questioned and then lived with the horrors of that war lived through the horrors of that war at great cost for many of them at the ultimate cost for many of them and then came back to an america that spat on them and rejected them and vilified them um and it was a, a real moment of crisis for the national character of um of america now I'm trying to put this into the mix because there's a very big difference between that experience to the experience of GIs coming back from the Second World War as the victors of a just war and how they could park that baggage as much as the individual veterans would know the realities of war and the horribleness and would have recognised their fellow um, their fellow travellers on the other side of the conflict that I guess all soldiers understand, which is why veterans of great wars, um, you know, sit together very easily with each other, it would seem, to relive 
that experience because of the shared trauma, the shared rite of passage. And again, they were young men um, and incredibly emotional. Um, it's an incredibly emotional legacy um, and incredibly emotional burden to carry, I think, for many soldiers. But imagine how much worse that burden is if you have been demonized for your participation in the the, the, the particular war you were involved in. Now, I'm trying to drag this back into um, fathers and sons and, 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 and the roles men are offered to fulfill. And so you have the righteousness of the GIs from the Second World War. And then there was the Korea War, I guess. And again, this is, you know, it's American because it's connected to Woodstock. And then you go to the Vietnam War and it's like, no, that wasn't just. And the conflict that that presents. And like I found myself thinking, looking at those men at Woodstock 99, like were these young men are, and this is, I mean, I'm asking this um, just for the sake of, the, 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 the problematic nature of the question do all young men need to fight a war and maybe some young women too and then we, you know, we're getting into this area of <laughs> of gender stereotyping and who should do what and who is best suited to do what but when you look at that anger of that crowd and the dangerousness the volatility of that crowd at Woodstock 99 and their general age profile. And you think, were those young men in need of stronger parenting, stronger fathering, so to speak, stronger male role models? Were they in need of um, a unifying and ennobling experience that would bring them together in a way that would as I say, lift them, edify them, bring them to a point of maturation that meant they wouldn't they wouldn't go down the road they went down at Woodstock 99. Um, and let me just be 100% clear here. Um, I'm not trying to say that all young men should go into a military experience. But in a way, you wonder, like metaphorically, is that something? Is there a war that we that we all have to fight to to earn our to earn our maturity? I mean, and I suppose I mean I, I did I spoke about this a few episodes ago. I can't remember which one it was, but the idea of rites of passage isn't that's the idea of a rite of passage to go through something that is altering, to go through something that is changing, to go through something that brings you to a new status in society, that you go through something the other side of which presents you with an opportunity to be valued more by society and if you do not go through that or if that experience does not exist for you in society what happens to you are you in a state of permanent adolescence are you in a state of permanent pre-maturation and then you carry that sense of unfulfillment through adulthood so that's taken me a long time <laughs> to get to what I think is a really good point. Um, so 
Yeah, and here, okay. And again, just because I'm looking at the time and I'm trying to not go too long on this, but I knew this was going to get a bit meaty. Um, here's the third quote. And this one, again, is going to speak to some of that behavior at Woodstock 99. Listen to this. We perceive when love begins and when it declines by our embarrassment when alone together. That is a quote from Jean de la Bruyère, an essayist and moralist from the 17th century, French. And he was considered a satiric moralist who was known for, I think he only had one significant work, which was called The Characters, also known by the subtitle The Manners of the Age from 1688, which uh, was published late in his life. But it was so popular uh, and basically, from what I read online, the idea behind that book was he would describe a certain uh, human characteristic and then he'd illustrate it by describing the behaviour of a figure who remained anonymous, but who the, the readers of the book would then, at the time, would frantically try to um, unmask the anonymous figure who embodied that particular personality trait and it was i guess uh, sort of salacious and scandalous and gossipy and mischievous but hugely popular and i think it had more than one edition um but that quote i think is absolutely brilliant we perceive when love begins and when it declines by our embarrassment when alone together and there's something about that idea of discomfort with somebody that you're attracted to at the beginning of a relationship and then that same a different kind of discomfort and awkwardness when it's at the end of love and it's a it's a, i find that, that that's i find that quite poignant in its way but to just i'm, I'm going to return i've got one final one to go to that's not from wordsmith.org which will we'll return to this idea because I, I only read it today and i found it very thought-provoking but if this key idea, and this is going to tie it back to Woodstock 99, our embarrassment when alone together. So just think about that idea. Think about how exposed you can be in the eyes of one other person. Yeah? And the intensity of that intimacy the intensity of that privacy, um, the no hiding place of that moment, and therefore the the discomfort, the potential discomfort, therefore the potential awkwardness, therefore the potential emotional nudity, the emotional exposure. Um, and then you go to the opposite idea of being in a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people and the the opposite of intimacy the opposite of exposure in that sense the opposite of real knowledge of the person beside you but rather this vast anonymizing energy where there's a barometer of tolerance that is being dictated by so many people around you 
that pulled you into the herd unless you're an individual of enormous courage or enormous restraint or of enormous personal conviction and when that energy is dark and destructive what the hell are you going to do i mean are you are you powerless to resist because that's what you again you watch the documentary woodstock 99 and that's what a lot of the commentators are saying that there was a vibe and an energy in the crowd that was like just it was like a tinderbox this is going to kick off this is going to just explode in the worst possible way and they were all right now maybe they're all being very clever after the fact but i don't think so it seems very genuine how they felt at the time and what they're expressing um in the documentary um but that's what i was thinking the the idea when you know you're you're not alone and the crowd dictates what is permissible now again go back a few episodes and i spoke about the ideas of tolerance in society um but you know what a festival isn't a festival isn't society people go to festivals to let their hair down they go to festivals so they can get messed up so they can listen to music so they can take drugs so they can drink and yeah, don't get me wrong i know i'm fully aware there are festivals out there that are not about alcohol they're not about drugs but for many people that's what going to the big festival is about that's what you know you go back to uh, the, the the 90s one of the big annual events in ireland was the trip to tip <laughs> Fela, this rock concert this this festival concert that would happen over a weekend in the summer I think I spent the summer in America in 1990 and I think that might have been the first year of of um, this festival that happened in Tipperary. Was it in Thurless? Is that right? Uh, and my friends went and that's all they were talking about, talking about when I came back from America and they were regaling me with uh, the hit song from the Saw Doctors. Uh, I wish I was on the N17 and I was like, what the hell? Am I Am I delighted I missed this? Am I sorry I missed it? Um, but it does, it, you know, it, it, and of course it does attract young people because in a way maybe festivals became the rite of passage that I was, that I've been lamenting the absence of. But then you question, what kind of rite of passage is it? Because ultimately, and maybe here is the key distinction, a rite of passage, while it may be extreme, while it may be dangerous, a rite of passage typically takes place under controlled conditions. And that, of course, is a relative term. So it depends on the culture, it depends on the history, it depends on the tradition, it depends on the society. But a, a rite of passage typically takes place in controlled conditions. And those conditions are there to facilitate an experience and to facilitate a desired end result now if a, a festival is basically a place where kids go to get away from their parents and i'm using those words metaphorically okay because i think that still can be the energy of a festival um, even though there are family friendly ones where kids can go too in a literal sense but 
the idea of a festival for many people is that that's where young people go to get away from the prying eyes the forbidding eyes the the the, the censoring eyes of 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 parents of teachers of bosses of police of society and you're all there together and the unwritten rule is we can do what we want and if that all happens in balance with a certain harmony and a certain positive energy and enjoying you know the music and enjoying the facilities and enjoying each other by and large they're really positive experiences but what Woodstock 99 shows you is when it goes pear-shaped it can go really pear-shaped really wrong and be no fun at all um okay so i've got one final quote it's long um and it's from joni mitchell and i just saw it on um i just saw it today on social media a friend a friend shared it on social media and i just thought it was really interesting um and in fact i have two joni mitchell quotes because I found myself wondering after looking at this lovely quote from Joni Mitchell, I was I was trying to remember had she performed at the original Woodstock. I mean, I've seen the the Woodstock concert from the the nineteen sixty nine um, Woodstock. Um, I've seen all of it once, bits of it many times. Um, and Joni Mitchell wasn't at Woodstock, but she wrote a very famous song about Woodstock, inspired by what. Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young shared with her. And the uh, the chorus of her song, Woodstock, which was written, I think, within a, within months of the actual festival. The, the, the quote from Joni Mitchell from that song, the chorus is, We are stardust. We are golden. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. That's it. Very simple. We are stardust. We are golden. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Now you think of that, those three ideas, stardust, golden, get back to the garden. It really epitomizes something at the heart of the hippie ethos that we're pure, that we're radiant, and that we're about nature, we're something natural or something that should be in harmony with the universe. And we need to get ourselves back to something pure and beautiful, natural, divine maybe in the sense of humanity rather than the idea of faith or a patriarchal God. Um, and then you, you, you try and put that idea, so beautifully expressed by Joni Mitchell, put that idea against what Woodstock 99 was. There was no garden and there was concrete, there was tarmac, there was the energy of a military complex, there was the energy of that music um, and there was very little about it that fed into these kind of pastoral ideas of the the, the natural aesthetic and harmony with the world. Um so that's a that's a nice little one from Joni, but let me let me just hit you with this longer one from Joni that that I came across today, 
for the first time. I don't know from from when. I, I, I gather relatively a relatively recent quote. And this is Joni Mitchell on monogamy. And let's just you know you know so monogamy and love fundamentally. So listen to this. This is really great. And I'll finish. I'll finish with this. Okay. So she said, um, I don't know if I've learned anything yet. I did learn how to have a happy home, but I consider myself fortunate in that regard because I could have rolled right by it. Everybody has a superficial side and a deep side. But this culture, and I presume she's talking about American culture, this culture doesn't place much value on depth. We don't have shamans or soothsayers and depth isn't encouraged or understood surrounded by this shallow glossy society we develop a shallow side too and we become attracted to fluff that's reflected in the fact that this culture sets up an addiction to romance based on insecurity the uncertainty of whether or not you're truly united with the object of your obsession is the rush people get hooked on I've seen this pattern so much in myself and my friends and some people never get off that line. But along with developing my superficial side, I always nurtured a deeper longing. So even when I was falling into the trap of that other kind of love, I was hip to what I was doing. I recently read an article in Esquire magazine called The End of Sex that said something that struck me as very true. It said, if you want endless repetition... See a lot of different people. If you want infinite variety, stay with one. What happens when you date is you run all your best moves and tell all your best stories. And in a way, that routine is a method for falling in love with yourself over and over. You can't do that with a long-time mate because he knows all that old material. With a long relationship, things die, then are rekindled. And that shared process of rebirth deepens the love. It's hard work though, and a lot of people run at the first sign of trouble. You're with this person and suddenly you look like an asshole to them, or they look like an asshole to you. It's unpleasant. But if you can get through it, you get closer. And you learn a way of loving that's different from the neurotic love enshrined in movies. It's warmer and has more padding to it. Joni, you are a goddess of wisdom. Isn't that just fantastic? I absolutely love that. So, so lovely. Now, Joni surely is one of the originals. Surely one of the original hippies. Such a unique, distinctive, wonderful artist, songwriter, woman. Thank you, Joni. None of that, none of what she just said chimed with the energy from Woodstock 99. (laughs) Ah, dear. So, alone together. Alone together. That's, That's what it's about. And in a way, we're all alone together in this, this, massive heaving mess of humanity on this ball spinning in the universe that we share and should care for so much more than we do 
So let's not live on the tarmac. Let's not have our festivals in the hangar. Let's be kind. Let's mind ourselves. Let's take responsibility for each other, maybe. That's my hippie sentiment. In whatever small ways we can, it's not about going out and saving the world all by yourself. You're going to burn out in the first couple of hours. Be sensible. Measure out your energy. Leave some for yourself or you're going to be useless to everyone, most of all, yourself. That's my little bit of wisdom for you there at the end. Okay, there you go. I got through most of it, I think. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I never, I never don't feel grateful for any of you who are out there listening. I really appreciate it. Um, and tune in again next week where there'll be there'll be more. And um, as I said, I'll be uh, going to try to. I'm lining up some more interviews. They'll be coming down the track, and um, other things in the pipeline as well. So there you go. We're done. That ended up being quite a long one. Um, I'll talk to you real soon. I'll probably talk to you this time next week <laughs> if you're a regular listener. Otherwise, you'll just uh, happen along on the podcast, the podcast uh, Spaghetti Junction, and you might you might pick mine up. You can find me on social media. Uh, the Clear Out Podcast is on Twitter. At, no, <laughs> no, it's not. The Clear Out Podcast by that name is on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, the Clear Out Podcast. Otherwise, the Clear Out 2, and that is the number 2, the digit 2, the Clear Out 2 is on Twitter. You can email me uh, at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. And if you want to contribute to this podcast, this independent podcast, this product of one middle-aged, white, straight man who's trying to put out a bit of a positive energy into the world you can do so you can support it you can use the supporter link which should be there somewhere in the description or you can become a regular contributor a patron of the show using the patreon link that's www.patreon.com forward slash the clear out and maybe you can become one of the new patrons of the show and get pushy in your requests for what you'd like on the clear out the podcast that is dedicated to wellness with attitude okay i'll leave you with that thanks again for listening do take care of yourselves do mind yourselves and i will see you soon i'll be here next week for more more of the tell and i'll hope i hope you'll be there too okay take it easy Talk to you soon. All the best. Bye.